Um, our text this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn to it, we're going to be in First um, Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, a bit of a kind of a tentative schedule for us going forward, um, just to kind of let you know. Uh, next Sunday, Heath will preach Second Samuel. Looking forward to that. Uh, after that, Drew will take First Kings. I will get Second Kings the following week, and then Pastor Tim will come back the Sunday before Easter and Easter Sunday and preach First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles. Not a challenge at all. There is that piece of cake. Looking forward to it. So just kind of that's tentative, kind of what we've got going forward, just to kind of keep y'all uh, updated as to, to where we're going. Um, the book of First Samuel, a bit of a background, First and Second Samuel are actually one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and they cover roughly 90 to 100 years um, in the book of First Samuel, covers about 90 to 100 years from the uh, birth of Samuel to the death of Saul. That's what um, First Samuel covers. It begins in the time of the judges, and First Samuel introduces to kind of a pivotal change in the uh, life of Israel and the history of Israel. We will see another kind of a pivotal change uh, with the birth of Samuel and then um, the uh, introduction of a monarchy. So for an overview, I want to go through kind of briefly, kind of fly over just a little bit and offer a few comments here and there of uh, the outline of the 31 chapters of 1 Samuel. Chapter 1, we get uh, the birth and the dedication of Samuel. That's covered in chapter 1. Hannah's song or prayer of thanksgiving and praise is what we will, our text will be this morning, and that's the first 10 cha- uh, verses of chapter 2. And then chapter 2 closes with the wicked sons of Eli along with the oracles against the house of Eli. Just a brief kind of comment about this. This is kind of going to set the stage for where Israel is going to go. If you remember back in the Judges, there was a continued refrain, the people did what was right in their own eyes. Well, now not only have the people doing what's right in their own eyes, we will see that the priest Eli and his sons will do exactly the same thing. They do what is right in their own eyes. One of the things they do, we read in uh, chapter 2, is they take the fatted portion of the sacrifice and they eat and they take it uh, for themselves. Well, God's law clearly lays out in Leviticus that the fatted portion is to be burned on the altar as an offering to the Lord. So they're taking the portion reserved for God and they're taking it for themselves. That is a wicked and evil thing for them to do. In the law, there is a provision for the Levitical priests and their household from the sacrifice that would feed them. There is more than enough provisions provided for them. The fat of the sacrifices reserved for the Lord. So that, along with the fact that in Shiloh, where the tabernacle is set up at this point, uh, the tent of meeting is set up, his sons are um, laying with the women outside the tent of meeting. So there are very wicked things going on here, and this is the priest. The Bible describes Eli as a fat man, much like in Judges when we saw Ehud. He is fat off the Lord's portion that he is, by extension, his sons are doing it, but apparently Eli too is is taking the portion that is not reserved for him. 
this is against God's law, this is a blasphemous, this is a terrible thing for them to do, and this is kind of going to point to where we will, uh, where Israel is heading when the priests are acting in this way. In chapter 3, we see the call of Samuel. Chapter 4, the ark is captured and Eli the priest dies. Now, the ark is captured is an interesting thing. We will see as kind of one of the things I like to highlight is there's repetitions in Scripture. There are things that we read and see that, that should remind us of either portions we've read that are in the future or portions in the history of Israel that, that seems familiar. Well, the ark is representative of God's presence in the tabernacle. And it is captured by the Philistines and taken from Israel. This is a picture of a, uh, of a coming judgment, a foreshadowing of a coming exile of the people. God's presence is taken from Israel and taken into the land of the Philistines. And in the story you, we read of one of um, Eli's son's wives has a child and she dies in childbirth, but she names him before she passes Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory has indeed departed because the ark is no longer with Israel. The presence of the Lord has left, and it is with the Philistines. And that is where in chapter 5 we read of the, uh, the Lord uses the Philistines to bring affliction on Israel, but also the Lord brings affliction on the Philistines. It's the story many of us have heard in this book where they take the ark, they place it in the temple of Dagon, and they place it before him, and the ark of God is there in the temple of the Philistines. And what happens? The statue of Dagon falls prostrate before the ark of the Lord, and it breaks off his head and his hands. There's that head that we talked about a few weeks ago, that cutting off of the head, that, de that defeating of the enemy. So, the Philistines are alarmed by this, so they take it away from the temple. They send it to another land, and this happens repeatedly three times, and he brings rats and boils. This should picture to us, and again, uh, here's a little bit of, a, of, of who the Philistines are. The Egyptians uh, and the Philistines are related. While the Philistines are not Egyptians, they are related from Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations, we will read that the father of the, the nation of the Philistines is a son of Egypt. So there's a tie here, and this um, plagues these things that, are, that, that God brings by having the ark in the land of the Philistines, bringing uh, boils and tumors and rats. This is judgment, just like in the uh, in Egypt, where he attacks the God of the Egyptians, he's attacking the God of the Philistines. And the God of the Philistines, like the gods of Egypt, show no match because they are no gods at all. Uh, we proceed in chapter 6 and 7, the ark returns, and Samuel judges Israel. The interesting thing about the ark returning is um, they get fed up very much like Egypt and Pharaoh, and he says, just the, they got to go. Get them out. Gotta, you know, get them out of here. 
They're destroying us. Well, very much the Philistines feel the same way. This ark has brought nothing but calamity upon this land. Send it back. So they come up with this concoction and they offer sacrifice and they put the ark on a cart tied to milk cows. And they say, the lords of the Philistines say that if the ark returns to Israel, then we know this, all of this calamity has been from the God of Israel. But if it doesn't, and it was just chance. These things just happened by chance or accident. All of the tumors, the rats, the Dagon falling prostrate before the ark. That's just chance if it doesn't return. Well, not only does it return to Israel, but the Bible goes to very great lengths in this story to tell us that it doesn't turn to the right or to the left. Like the wandering of Israel in the desert wilderness there's no wandering where the ark is turned back and it goes straight back to Israel. So the ark returns to Israel. Chapter 8, we read where Israel demands a king. <clears throat> and when Israel demands a king, the, the first thing they ask for, and a little bit of a background here as well, not only is Eli's sons problematic, but Samuel's sons are also problematic. They uh, are dealing... Um, Shrewdly, they are dealing corruptly with the people. Uh, and this is the response the people have. The elders come to Samuel and says, give us a king like the other nations. Which is why God says to, the, to uh, Samuel, they've not rejected you. It seems though that they have rejected him. If he can't lead his family any better than this, if this is what his sons look like, how is he to lead Israel and judge Israel? So give us a king like the other nations. God tells him, you, you, they're not rejecting you. They have rejected me. Now, a thing to keep in mind here is a king has always been in view for Israel. It's always been in view, not only for Israel, but for the entire land, which encompasses more than just the promised land that Israel has, but if we will see that's fulfilled in Christ, it is all of creation. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Jacob to Judah to David, a king's always been in view. Adam was created as the first man, and he was told to rule and subdue all of creation. That is what kings do. And Adam failed. He allowed another to come in, and instead of asserting his uh, kingly duty, his husbandly duty, his authority that was given to him by God... When the serpent, Satan, came and tempted his wife, what he should have done if he was a godly king and acting the way he was commanded to do is he would have run the serpent off, but he does not. And he allows her to be tempted. She eats of the fruit, and all of creation falls. So from there forward, a king has always, always, always been in view. But every earthly king, because of the fall, because of sin, we will, show, we will repeat whether they, even though they point to the greatest king, to the greater king, they will fall short. As good as some of the earthly kings we ha they have had, as good as they may be, they always fall short. There is something about them that is just not um, what is in view of what God would call a king to be. So again, Noah... After the flood, he's given the same command, rule and subdue. 
that's your command. He fails Abraham, Jacob, and then we get Judah, and uh, as he blesses his sons, Jacob blesses Judah. And one of the interesting things as we read that text is it says the scepter will not depart from Judah until, in the ESV version, says until tribute comes. Well, the King James translates the word there, the Hebrew word, it says until Shiloh comes. Now, that's a different Shiloh than the physical Shiloh that we're looking at here in our text. It's a different Hebrew word. That word Shiloh or tribute in the ESV says he who it, to he who it belongs or he's who it is. So when we read that, it says the scepter will not depart from Judah until he whose it is comes. Well, who? That's a messianic title that is looking forward and the blessings of Jacob to Judah is a messianic uh, uh, blessing and prophecy that is fulfilled in Christ. As we move along, chapters 9 and 10, Saul is anointed king and chosen by the casting of Lot. In 11 and 12, Saul is, uh, Saul is confirmed. 13 and 14, Saul is rebuked and struggles against the Philistines and curses his son Jonathan. And chapter 15, Saul is rejected. Saul shows himself to be an earthly, a worldly king. One of the things that's a contrast between David and Saul is, as we will see, Saul, uh, David gives credit to the Lord for his victories. Even when he was just a shepherd boy and he defeats the lions and the bears that were trying to attack his flock, he says, the Lord delivered them into my hands and I defeated the lion and the bear. Where Saul, as, as soon as he is made king, anointed king, confirmed as king, he has a great victory over the Amalekites. And rather than give credit to the Lord for delivering the Amalekites into the hands of Saul, he sets up a monument to himself. That's what worldly leaders do. I, I'm pretty awesome. The Bible even says that Saul was a head taller than all of the Israelites. He was... Uh, uh, attractive in appearance. He was what you would say a king should look like. Yet, his heart was not a king, uh, what God would call a king to be. So he takes credit for the victory. Chapter 16, we get to, uh, David is now anointed king and he um, arrives into the court of Saul. Chapter 17, David defeats Goliath, and just a brief thing about that. That's, this, this is a story that we have known since we were children growing up in church. This is a story that's told repeatedly. What this story is not about, it is not about how to slay the giants in your life. This is, again, about the sovereignty of God and the believing that God, in faith, that he will accomplish his purposes through you. So uh, I will continue to mention there are patterns that repeat themselves here. This, in my view, is a pattern that repeats itself. For 40 days, this Philistine giant comes and taunts the armies of, the, of, of Israel. For 40 days. There's that number again. That number keeps repeating itself. And he taunts them and he taunts them. And, and he is a massive giant. The Bible says he is six cubits in a span, which... In feet, that means he's nine feet, nine inches tall. He couldn't walk into the, any, of, any one of these rooms in here without ducking considerably. Uh, I work with a guy, he's about six nine. 
Goliath would be three feet taller than this guy. And he's six nines tall, especially to me. Uh, that's real tall. This is a massive man. This is not a figurative. It, he is actually a big giant. Well, what was the problem with the Israels in the wilderness? The spies went out and they returned. Two of them said they all had the same report, but only two said that the Lord will give the land to us. Said that they were not only were they many, but there were giants in the land. Giants is a biblical concept. Whatever the ancient world pre and post flood looked like, in the time of David and right here, there are still giants in the land. Nine foot nine inches, we can agree that's a big person. That's a very, very big person. And the book, it also says that he had brothers. Were they giants as well? I don't know. The problem is, is he. Is, is Israel, as well as the spies in the wilderness, saw with their eyes, and that affected what they believed. They thought, well, we can't defeat these enemies. We, we have no shot. Israel's doing the same thing with Goliath. He's taunting them, and no one will go out to fight the giant. Well, David, of course, David shows up, and David curses. He's indignant that the, that, that, that the uh, God of Israel, uh, the army of Israel, is being taunted, this uncircumcised Philistine. How dare he face the army of Israel and challenge our God? So he goes and delivers him. He has belief that, we, that he can accomplish it because God will give him into his hands. It's not David's strength that he's going to go out. It's the same with the lion and the bear. He will defeat the, 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 the Philistine giant, because the Lord will give it into his hands, not because of any skill that David has in and of himself. So this causes in chapter 18, Saul becomes jealous. Chapter 19, Saul tries to kill David. Jonathan's loyalty to David is displayed uh, in chapter 20. And um, chapter 21 and 22, David, uh, we get the story of David and the holy bread. And David is a fugitive in Gath. Adullam, Mizpah, and then David kills the priests at Nob. Chapter 23, we get the rescue of the city of Keilah, and Saul pursues David. Chapter 24, Saul, or David spares Saul's life. In chapter 25, we get the death of Samuel. Chapter 26, David spares Saul's life once again. Chapters 27 and 28, Saul flees to the medium and visits the medium at Endor. Chapter 29, the Philistines reject David. And then chapter 30, David's wives are captured by the Amalekites and David defeats the Amalekites. And then finally, the book closes with the death of Saul and Jonathan. So we move to our text this morning, and this is um, Hannah's prayer. So if you would read with me. Beginning in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. 
The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall, man, shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace towards us, your people. Lead us this morning through your word. May it bring clarity and conviction. Remove my inadequacies to speak clearly and concisely. And may you be glorified in this place today. Amen. Okay, so a bit of background to uh, this prayer of praise from Hannah. Um, Elkanah is a faithful man. And this is demonstrated in his wife, Hannah, but he is also shows his imperfections and he is, has two wives. That's still illegal. That's still against God's law. From the beginning, that has been the case. So it is still the case. So just because we see a faithful man that goes up to the, to offer his sacrifice yearly, he's a faithful man. He does what the Lord has commanded. Yet this is a problem. So he has uh, one wife, Hannah, and one wife, Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. And they would go up to Shiloh every year to worship and offer sacrifice. Verse 4 through 7 says that on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. <clears throat> as I've mentioned, there's patterns that seem to repeat themselves. And as I read this, there, one that jumps out at me. This seems very similar to Jacob with Leah and Rachel and the the wife that Jacob loved the most was Rachel. That's who he, we know the story. Well, it, he's, he has many children by Leah, but Rachel, he does not have children until the Lord opens her womb. So there's a kind of a repetition. Well, with Jacob, that's a, that's a big swing in the history of Israel. There's, a, there's kind of a, a pivotal moment with, with Jacob and his sons. And here... Two, with Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah, there's another pivotal moment. And uh, this woman prays earnestly to the Lord to give her a child. And the difficulty here, as someone that has been married to the same woman for over 33 years and has raised two adult daughters, I have an idea of kind of how women act. And they, they would not take well any woman this is a very difficult thing. It's a very personal thing to not be able to have children. And to have someone 
constantly picking at you for this. In your house, this is something that Hannah had to listen to from Penina. Every time she would have a child, and she, this, is, this is a wound, deep wound. And it was bad enough if Penina said nothing, but it says very clearly that he, she used this to provoke her. This is the same idea, by the way, that Paul uses to parents, do not provoke your children to anger. It's that same kind of antagonizing to hatred and anger. This is what... Penina would do to Hannah repeatedly. Every year they'd go offer the sacrifice and every year this would happen. So she prays fervently to the Lord because she knows he is the one that can do these things. So Elkanah with Penina and Hannah are very uh, are, um, um, similar with again with the Rachel and Leah story but as we see in the narrative, not only does she pray, but as they return that very next year, the God remembers her. She prays fervently for a child, and she says to the Lord, if you give me this child, I will dedicate him back to you. Not, a razor will not come upon his head. That kind of, she, she commits him to, to a Nazarite vow. So the Lord remembers Hannah in her prayer, and he opens her womb. And the very next year, when they go out to offer sacrifice, she asks to remain to wean the child and says, I will return uh, once the child is weaned to give him to the Lord. That is what she does. She takes that which the Lord has given her, and she, while, as God remembers her plea and her petition for a child, she also remembers her promise to the Lord if he would give her this child. And she takes Samuel to the temple, to Shiloh, to the um, tent of meeting, and she gives Samuel to Eli and dedicates him to the Lord. That is what, how we should see our children, not as a sacrifice, she sacrificed her son to service to God. That was what she promised to do. That was her call. When we have children, that is what they are. They're an inheritance from the Lord from us. They were his before they were ours. How do we look at children when we have them? Do we look at them as a blessing and an inheritance? And do we look at them rightly as while God has given them to us, they are his. They were his first and they will remain his. And are we willing to, to raise them that way? What does that look like? There's many ways that, it, that those kind of things play themselves out. It is something that we should always consider when we approach things like this. Is, um, it's an incredible thing for me for what she did. It seems just kind of we're jaded in our age that we would make promises. I mean, how many have made promises? If God, if you do this, I'll never do this again. And he does it. And did you do that again? Probably. I'm, I'm guilty. She kept her word and she dedicated this child. And the Lord continued to open her womb and she had many children. But... That's 
it's a convicting thing. This is why I say that these people had faith. Even though they were in a polygamous relationship, which was against God's law, there was a faithfulness that God had bred in this family. We saw it last week with, um, with, with Ruth and Naomi. And, and, and there was faith in this family. Did they do things that were wrong and sinful? Yeah. But there was a faith there. God has bred, bred a faith in these people. And God uses them and he keeps his promises to them. So how do we look at our children? What do we do? Are we willing to ask the questions that I think are important in our day? And I think they've come to light even more so over the last few years. I've been under this conviction for a while. Many of you, I've shared the story many times. Um, I was nearly 38 years old before the Lord saved me. My children were teenagers. The conviction of the Word of God on me, it is a very humbling thing to have to sit your family down, your wife and your children, and say you have failed to be the spiritual leader of their family, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where do we, can we honestly, I'm not going to sit here and point fingers that you should do this or that, or you're sinning. What I'm saying is we need to ask the questions. Where are we sacrificing our children to the world? Or where are we raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Where are we protecting them and raising them? Or are we giving them over just because we've done it for so long? There's many things that we can look outside and point to. But God has given us our children for, our, for, for his purpose. And we know our children better than anybody else. So do we lead and, 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 and raise our children that way? It's a question I think that's worthy of asking. So again, uh, moving along, the books of Samuel are bookended by this prayer that, of Hannah's with uh, the prayer of deliverance of David at the end of Second uh, Samuel. Sam, or, uh, Hannah's song of praise and thanksgiving is bookended with David's prayer of deliverance, which happens to be basically Psalm 18 is that prayer that, that kind of closes the book of 2 Samuel. But also, uh, Hannah's prayer is very, very similar in wording and theme and what she is getting at to Mary's prayer in Luke 1, known as the Magnificat. Just an interesting, I'm not going to go into very much detail, but it, those are interesting things, especially this prayer of Hannah and Mary's prayer. Look at the similarities of it, and um, there's themes here. Hannah had in view a redeemer and a king. So does Mary. Uh, again, these uh, repeated themes throughout Scripture point to the larger narrative of the coming Christ, the Redeemer. Um, speaking on this particular section of Scripture, uh, Matthew Henry, in his commentaries, has this to say about verses 1 through 10. It said, Hannah's heart rejoiced, not in Samuel, but in the Lord. She looks beyond the gift and praises the giver. She rejoiced in the salvation of the Lord and in expectation of his coming, who is the whole salvation to his pe of his people. The strong are soon weakened, and the weak are soon strengthened when God pleases. Are we poor? God made us poor, which is a good reason why we should be content and make up our minds 
to our condition. Are we rich? God made us rich, which is a good reason why we should be thankful and serve him cheerfully and do good with the abundance he gives us. He respects not man's wisdom or fancied excellences, but chooses those whom the world accounts foolish, teaching them to feel their guilt and to value his free and precious salvation. This prophecy looks to the kingdom of Christ, that kingdom of grace of which Hannah speaks, after having spoken largely of the kingdom of providence, and here is the first time that we meet with the name Messiah or his anointed. The subjects of Christ's kingdom will be safe, and the enemies of it will be ruined, for the anointed of the Lord Christ is able to save and to destroy. This word he mentions we get at the end of uh, in chapter or verse 10 is the word that Hebrew word transliterated means Messiah anointed. It's the same word in Greek that we get Christos, which means Christ. Every one of the anointed of the Lord in scripture points to Jesus, the promised Messiah. Hannah, faith and a sovereign God to bring about his promises is clearly demonstrated in her prayer. She's already demonstrated that she believes, like David, that the Lord will give her if it is his purpose. She prayed to the one that could give her a child, and her faith is demonstrated in her prayer for petition, but also in her prayer for thanksgiving. She remembered the Lord for what he had given her. How often in our day do we forget? I know I do. It's easy for us when things are going, dif- going difficult for us to go to the Lord and pray and ask for deliverance from whatever ailment, physical, spiritual, or whatever we're going through. Those are easy days when we pursue God. But when he gives us the plenty and when he gives us everything seems to be going well, do we run to him as often to thank him because he is also the giver of those things as well. These are always good things to, to remind ourselves of. Do we believe that God is able to comp- accomplish all that he has promised despite our circumstances? Can we say with Paul that we are content in Christ, whether in want or in plenty? We look at the world we live in. Will we be like Joshua and Caleb or will we be like the ten spies? Will we be like David or will we be like Saul in the army of Israel? Seeing with our eyes what seems possible for us or will we see with the eyes of faith in God that God in Christ Jesus is bringing about deliverance from our enemies? Are our enemies God's enemies? If they are, then we can be confident that Jesus is, right now, putting all of his enemies under his foot and the final enemy is death. So, How do we apply this? What are we to say? So let us again hear from Paul. I'm going to close um, with the words of Scripture because it says it way better than I can. So Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with either eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we look to these things and believe these promises? God is preserving a people from the beginning. From the beginning, he has preserved his elect. The remnant of the Old Testament... And these stories testify to a faith that generates not from within, but it's, it's the alien faith, this alien righteousness that only can come from God. That is the pattern through these stories. Every one of these stories has a purpose, and it points to the larger narrative of God preserving a people for himself. In the Old Covenant, there was a remnant that he preserved, but he always preserved it. And we get these stories, and they're not always, and they're not always as we will see throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, they're not always physical descendants of Abraham, but they are through the physical descendants of Abraham that he's able to save any, and that is Christ. The New Covenant switches, and at Pentecost, the remnant becomes many, and he saves a multitude 3,000 souls are added that day, and day by day, he is adding to his kingdom, to his people, those that he is saving. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about this great number of people that he is saving for himself. We look, I'm as guilty as anybody, we look at the world and we go, it, it looks bad. But I contend with you, because of what scripture says and what God has promised he is doing, that day by day he is adding to those who are being saved. That the world is telling us that everything is bad. And, and make no mistake, it, it's bad. But I think there's things going on across this globe. There's 8 billion people on this planet. 
the Lord's not just, he's moving all over this globe. His kingdom is spreading and he's adding day by day those who are being saved. I believe that because that's what this book says. That's what he has promised to do. So when we are discouraged, can we take confidence that we have been armed with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is the means by which he is bringing people into the kingdom? If we can do that, that is our hope. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. We are all going to (laughs) die. That's coming for each and every one of us. But while we're here, we can be a part of what God is doing and what he has called us to do. And that's, um, that's what I think we all should strive to do as imperfectly as each and every one of us do, myself included. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for um, the opportunity to open your word to your people. Father, I pray that you would... Um, use, again, my inadequacies to um, to cut through that you, um, your word is perfect and it accomplishes its, perfect, uh, its purposes even through imperfect vessels. Father, may you stir us up to face this world with the confidence that because of Christ, you are bringing people into the kingdom and that it will be successful because you have promised success to your people. May we enter our each and every day with this in view. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.